God, we thank you for the truth that, that we just expressed in song, that, that we know the, the power of other things. We know the power of darkness. We know the power of our own sin. We know the power of death. But then there's this incredible realization that you are stronger than any of that. We, we thank you this morning that we serve a powerful God, a God who's powerful beyond our, our wildest dreams of what's even possible, infinitely powerful. And we thank you that you are in control of the whole world. We pray this morning that you would teach us through your word, again, of the power and the strength that, that you displayed in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this asking for the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. If you grew up in church, it's easy to get used to some of the stories that are in the Bible and to kind of uh, forget that some of the events that it talks about are, are truly incredible things. I mean, things that are beyond our experience of what happens in the world. Uh, so the resurrection of Jesus is, is one of those incredible stories. You and I have never seen anything like this before. And we, we've seen people die and, and we've seen people be buried, but, but none of us has ever seen anyone come back out of a grave alive again. I mean, this is, resurrection is a huge thing. But if you grew up in the church and you've uh, come to the, hear the Easter message frequently enough, it's just sort of a normal thing. You've, you've come to understand it. Perhaps you've come to believe it. You don't even kind of blink an eye when you hear the resurrection of Jesus. But imagine that you've never heard this message before, and you find yourself in a church uh, on a Sunday morning, say Easter Sunday, and you hear the gospel message proclaimed. You hear that, that Jesus died on a cross. This man, Jesus Christ, died on a cross for your sins, and he was buried on, on a Friday. And then that he rose to death, that God raised him from death to life on, on a Sunday morning, and that, that the, he then walked around and he appeared to people after that. If you hear this for the first time and, and the only background you have to understand this message is what our culture produces, then, then you're probably going to have some questions about it, right? This is a totally new concept to you because you've never heard of anything or seen of anything like this before. I heard a story, uh, and it was told to me as a true story, I'm not sure if it was actually true or not, but I believe it is, uh, that a person who had no church background came on an Easter Sunday, and they heard this message, and, and, and they came and, and approached the, the uh, pastor after the, Sunday, or the Easter message and said, you know, I, I don't mean to be offensive here, but I'm just trying to understand what you're saying here. So you're saying that Jesus died, and then that later people saw him walking around. So, again, I don't want to be offensive, but, but was Jesus, you know, like a a zombie? I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard concept, right? And of course, there are some people who use that as a joke. There's sort of the Jesus zombie day kind of a thing. And of course, that's kind of sacrilegious and really offensive to those of us who believe in the actual resurrection of Jesus. But this can also be a genuine question for people. If you've got no categories for understanding this apart from what uh, our culture produces, then the only thing that we have to go on when we think of some existence after death, being enlivened after death, is, is like a zombie movie or something like that. And really, we'll see that this is actually, the resurrection is actually the antithesis of a zombie movie. Jesus is not undead walking around still decomposing. He is truly enlivened and made uh, alive again and is a life-giving spirit. So it's actually the antithesis of a zombie movie. But nonetheless, if that's the only category you have, if you didn't grow up in church, then this is something that could really bother you. You could have a question like this. Well, Paul is uh, teaching, writing a letter to a group of people who didn't grow up in the church. This is a group of people who are first-generation Christians, and they're still wrestling with, with the message of Jesus and what this means. And, and you can tell in particular that they're having a hard time with this concept of resurrection from the dead. This is a difficult concept for them. 
They believe that Jesus was raised. They've heard the gospel, that he died and that he rose, and they believe that that's true, but they're still having a hard time wrestling with, well, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as Christians then? And so this whole resurrection of the dead concept is really hard for them. So Paul's taking this whole long chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 to tell them, first of all, how important resurrection is. This is something that's crucial for them. But he's also telling them that they too will be raised to life like Jesus was. Now, that's really good news if they've understood what he's said, but it still might raise some objections for them. So we get a question at the beginning of our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, 35. Paul says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Now, it's possible that this is a mocking sort of a question, kind of pointing out the ridiculousness of resurrection on the line of someone today saying, well, was Jesus a zombie kind of a thing. But it's also possible this is a legitimate question that these people faced. In their worldview, it was hard to understand that. And for us, too, this is a hard concept because none of us have experienced anything like this before, right? So Paul is actually going to use some uh, work from what we know, from our known experience, to try to draw some illustrations and analogies to help us understand the unknown. So he's going to use two illustrations from the known world to help us understand what is this unknown of the resurrection, what, it's, what is it going to be like. And of course, it's not going to answer every single question we have uh, about what our resurrected bodies will be like and the experience of resurrection, but at least it's going to give us some categories to begin to understand what it is the hope that we are looking forward to. It's like my college friends from southern Florida who had never seen snow uh, before coming to school in the Chicago area. Of course, they'd seen pictures of snow and they could connect it to things like rain. It's, so it's precipitation. They, they know the color white. They have some categories for thinking through it. But until they were actually there and experienced snow for the first time, they didn't know what it was fully like. So when they experienced it for the first time, there were surprises. Oh, it's, it's wet. Oh, it's, it, it's cold. Well, yeah, so there are surprises. We're going to learn some categories to understand what's going on in resurrection. But, of course, when we experience it, it'll be glorious and new and, and a full new experience. But for now, I want us to just be able to understand enough to have our imaginations captured by the beauty of what God is going to do, the beauty of the future that uh, waits for us. And that's really the, the point this morning, is to help kind of capture our imaginations of what is God going to do, uh, the beauty of what he has promised. So this morning we're in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, and we're at the toward the tail end of the chapter now, uh, verses 35 through 49. If you haven't already turned there, this would be a great time to do that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can use a Bible in the pew rack. It's found on page 1140. 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49. So the, ch- the chapter is now shifting from a-, a long discussion of the resurrection, and why that's so important, now to what resurrection is like, what are our resurrected God- bodies going to be. So what's going to happen to us when Christ returns and we are raised like he was raised? Paul's going to answer this question uh, by using two illustrations that move from the known world around us to the unknown of resurrection. So first he's going to talk about seeds and plants. But before we get to the illustration, we have to see his rebuke at the beginning of verse 36. So the question, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And then his immediate response in 36, how foolish? Or a little bit more sharply, fool. Now, that might kind of catch us off guard because it seems like it could be a legitimate question, but Paul's pointing out that there's a problem with that. Even if it's a legitimate question, there's a problem with that. 
And he's not just name-calling, like fool in, in our terminology is just an angry word and kind of mocking someone like idiot or something like that. It's just not a kind word. But he's actually drawing on, on the biblical connotations of what a fool is. So in the Old Testament wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, a fool is someone who simply does not take God into account. So, so Psalm 53, 1, the fool says in his heart there's no God. So he's saying if you've got questions about the resurrection, you're acting foolishly. You're not taking God into account. God is powerful. He's in control, and he is alive and active in the world. So if you're going to understand resurrection, you have to know the God who raises the dead. So God is going to be central to this whole thing. Don't act like a fool, not taking God into account, but act like a wise person, seeing that God is alive, seeing that he's active, seeing that he's powerful. So that's the starting point. God is central to this whole thing. Now he can get to his illustration. Verse 36. How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. So he's using an illustration from the agricultural world, and most of us, uh, even in elementary school, they, they do these kind of projects where you plant a seed, and it kind of germinates, and it grows up into a little plant. So most of us understand this process, at least at a, at a, a basic level. So a seed becomes a plant. It's transformed, and it becomes a plant, right? But the seed doesn't do that unless it dies, so to speak, first, unless you bury it in the ground and, and cover it with dirt. But what happens when you do that? When you do bury it in the ground and cover it, when you, and it goes kind of in this grave, so to speak, well, then it starts to germinate. It starts to, to grow, and it, it turns into a plant. It grows into this beautiful plant. But, of course, the seed looks different from the plant. You could look at a little seed, and you'd be hard-pressed to guess what kind of a plant, unless you already had some experience with this, you'd be hard-pressed to know what kind of a plant would come out of that little seed. So the emphasis on, is on transformation. The seed is transformed into a plant, even though it's the same organism. So the seed and the plant are the same organism, but there's a huge transformation that happens there. So what does this have to do with resurrection? Skip down to verse 42. We'll come back up to 39 in a moment here. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So the point he's making is drawing on this illustration of the seed. A seed is transformed. It's the same organism, but it's transformed into a plant. And the same thing is true with the resurrection. Even though the body is the same body, fundamentally, it undergoes a transformation. So the stress that he's putting on this first part is both continuity and transformation. And this is really amazing if you look at 42 to 44 and see exactly what he's talking about here. Look, look back at those verses. So I've put it up in, in two columns here on the slide here. Uh, on the one side is the perishable. This is the stuff that we know on the left side. And then on the other side is, is what it will be, is the transformation that will actually happen. See, we know all about the stuff on the left side. We know what it's like to, to be perishable, to be corruptible. We know about dishonor. We know about weakness. We know about natural bodies. This is the stuff that you experience every day. This is living in the world, and it's not always easy. Sometimes it's very hard. I'm only about 18 or so, so I don't know this, but those of you who are older than me tell me that when you wake up in the morning, your joints are, are sore, your back might be stiff. If you've gone for a walk, maybe your leg muscles are tired. Maybe you've got arthritis in your ankle. You've got all sorts of problems that are coming on, and, and I look forward to those years with a little bit of uh, nervousness, I guess, because I think, well, that's going to be hard. And of course, when you're 
young and, and my age, you can joke about these kind of things when you're only beginning to see the signs of aging. But then if you've seen someone, as it becomes more severe, it becomes, of course, less funny because suddenly you're not just dealing with some aches and pains and thinking, oh, okay, that's kind of funny. I guess I'm aging a little bit, but you're actually starting to lose bodily capability. You're starting to lose your mobility. You're starting to even have your mind slip a little bit. And this is a very difficult thing to see. I'm sure many of you have seen uh, loved ones go through this aging process, and it's very difficult. I remember seeing my grandfather, who was always a very strong man, start to lose his capabilities. If you uh, haven't seen me cry six times, that was the newcomer dinner, so this is one. You can check that off. Oh, I wasn't supposed to do that. Um, but even, even to the point where he had trouble communicating toward the end of his life. But you see someone undergo this process. This is, this is the natural world around us, and, and it, everyone is susceptible to it, and every single person has this happen. Everyone dies. So if we were going to use an analogy from the plant world like, like Paul does, we'd probably use a different one. We'd say, well, people are like leaves. In the spring, they shoot out a little bit, start to become green, and then all summer long they're, they're green. And then in the fall, they start to wither and die, and they fall off the tree dead, and they decompose. That's what life is like as we see it. If we were going to pick an analogy, I think that's probably what we'd say. We're like leaves. Spring, new life, new, when you're born a baby, then you go through adulthood, and then you come to the end of your life, and you fall, and you decompose. That would be our illustration from the plant world. But Paul's saying, no, no, God has a solution for this. In this life, yeah, our bodies fall, fail us, they die, but, but death is not the end for humans any more than being planted in the ground is the end for a seed. Out of death comes life, and not just the same kind of life, and certainly not undeath like a zombie, but, but new life, imperishable, transformation to imperishable, to glorious, to powerful, to spiritual. So this is incredibly good news. And this is what makes a Christian funeral so much different than the, the funeral for someone who's not a believer in Christ. It means that those who are in Christ, the reality for them is that death is like planting a seed. And yes, they, they are in the ground now, but Christ will return to make all things new. And when he does, those who are in him will be raised from death to life just like he was, and they'll be transformed and have a glorious new body, no longer fragile and fail and corruptible but new, glorious, powerful, like Christ's. That's the point of this first illustration. We've got to think about human life differently. It's not just a leaf that goes from a little bud down to the ground in, in, one, in a couple seasons. No, this is a seed that's planted and is transformed to new life. The same organism, the same body, but transformed into a glorious new body. That's the point of this first illustration. Second, he, to try to help us understand what resurrected bodies are all about, he's going to talk about different kinds of bodies uh, in the world around us. So look at verses 39 to 41. He says, Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another kind. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So the point here is that God has given different kind of organisms, different bodies. So you've got people, you've got animals, you've got birds, you've got fish, and each one of them has a different sort of body. We're not all the same embodied creatures. And then you look out at the universe and you see that the same thing is true there. You've got the sun, you've got the moon, you've got the stars, and even one star is different from another star. God has given each one a body that is fitting to its part in the created order. 
And that's the point of this illustration. God gives the right kind of body for each situation. So when we take that to resurrection, we see that we can trust that God will give us the right kind of body for resurrected life, for life in his kingdom. So right now we live life, uh, our earthly life, in a body that's fit for earthly existence, our corruptible, perishable, mortal, weak bodies. But he's saying when Jesus returns to make all things right, we will be transformed. We will get a new body that's fit for life in God's kingdom. That's where he's going with this. Look at verses 44 uh, to 49, picking up halfway through 44 where we left off. He says, if there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So he's saying, listen, there's a difference between natural bodies and spiritual bodies. And he's drawing on this difference between Christ and Adam, the the first man, Adam, and the last man, the man from heaven, Christ. So right now, we have natural bodies. And we know that. We live in the natural world. We face all of the things that other natural people uh, face. But when God raises us when Christ returns, we will have spiritual bodies. There will be a transformation from the natural to the spiritual. Now, it's easy for us, especially as Westerners, after the kind of Plato and other philosophers like him, to misread that distinction between spiritual, uh, natural and spiritual. We might think that natural means the physical stuff, the tangible stuff of the world, and spiritual is more like spirit or soul, kind of, this is the disembodied heart player thing that we talked about a couple weeks ago. But the distinction is not between what you are made of, natural versus spiritual, it's actually what empowers and enlivens us. So we live, of course, here next to Lake Michigan, so most of us have at least a rudimentary understanding of boats, so let's, let's think about it in those terms. You could go down to the harbor and the marina when all the boats are in, and, and you could say, well, that some boats are made of fiberglass and, and others are made of steel, others are made of wood. It's, it's the substance that they're made out of. And you might hear natural and spiritual here in, in 1 Corinthians 15 and think in those terms. It's, it's what you're made of, either physical stuff or spiritual stuff. But you can also go down to the harbor and make a distinction between what powers the boat, a boat that's powered by steam, like the beloved badger, or a boat that's powered by wind or by an engine or, or something else. The difference is what powers and moves the boat, not what it's made out of. And that's what Paul is getting at here with the difference. He's talking about being naturally empowered, naturally uh, uh, activated, and being spiritually empowered. So he draws back to the the story of Adam, the the first man, Adam, in verse 45. He says, the first man, Adam, became a living spirit. So he's a living soul. So he's going back to the creation story in Genesis 2 to say, this is is where we come from. This is what it means to be a a natural person. And you go back to Genesis 2, you see that, that Adam, the first man, became a living being when God breathed breath into him. And that's what we are. We are all natural people. We are living souls who breathe uh, in and out. We're living beings. But, so that's natu- being naturally uh, animated. But there's now a spiritual man. That he calls him the, the last uh, Adam, the, the, the second man, the man from heaven. And this one is Jesus Christ. And, and this is a different thing now. 
So we used to bear Adam's image, but now we will bear the image of Christ, the one who is life-giving spirit, the one who is spiritual. So that's the distinction between natural, that's in Adam, and then spiritual is in Christ. And we've got to remember that, that Paul's premise throughout this whole chapter from the very beginning is that our resurrection follows the resurrection of Jesus. Our resurrection is tied to his. It will be like his. So now we know that we are natural people. We, we bear Adam's image. We, we have all the consequences of living in this natural existence like Adam did. But this incredible statement at the end of 49 is that we will bear the image of the spiritual man. We will bear the image of Christ himself when we are raised in these new bodies. We'll be spiritual people with bodies like Christ's resurrected bodies that are animated by the Spirit of God and therefore are glorious and immortal and powerful like we saw in the transformation in the first uh, section here. So this, the point of the second thing is, that, is God is going to give us a body, first of all, that's transformed, but now that's, that's fit for the existence in God's kingdom. God will give us a body that's fit for his kingdom. That's what this business about the different kind of bodies and the Adam and Christ distinction, that's what this is about. Saying God is going to give us bodies like Christ's resurrected body, a body that is animated by God's Spirit, that's fit for His kingdom, that's glorious, that's immortal, that's powerful. And really, this is an incredible statement. If we can start to wrap our minds around what's being said here, this is incredible, that we will bear the image of Christ, that we will no longer be just naturally empowered, but that God's Spirit will be in us so that we'll be spiritually empowered and animated people. So I was thinking about this week. This is one of the things that, that is so hopeful to me about this is it, it means that the struggle with sin is not forever. See, some of you, sin doesn't really bother you. you know, maybe you just don't consider yourself a sinful person. You don't really think you're that bad, whatever. This isn't going to make sense to you. Or, or maybe uh, you realize that you're kind of a bad person, but it, it's not so bad, and you kind of found a way of coping with your sin, and, and you, it just doesn't bother you anymore. So what I'm going to say to you is not going to really, really make sense to you right now, Uh, What you need is something entirely different. You need God's Spirit to convict you of your sin and show you the holiness of God so that you actually are first bothered by sin, and then this can be good news for you. But but some of you are deeply bothered by your sin, right? You know that you're sinners, and you don't like it. You want to worship God with your whole heart. You want your whole existence to to be giving Him praise and giving Him honor. And yet you see that you fail to do that time after time. You, You see that you hurt those around you. You see that you are a selfish person. You see that you dishonor God with your life. And that's not what you want. You want to worship God. You want to be other-centered. You want to serve others. You want to to live your life well. But it's so hard, and, and you find yourself failing to do it time after time after time. It seems like all the time you're failing to live as you want to live, failing to live in God's image. Not just a couple times a year, not just even once a month or a couple times a week, but it seems like all the time you're failing to live up to the standard that you have, that the standard of wanting to, to worship God rightly and to obey Him with every moment of your life. But that's because you're a natural person. So of course you're going to struggle with this. You're like Adam. And the truth is, if, if the best that we can do is try really hard in our own natural resources to worship God and to obey Him with our lives, then we're lost and the whole thing is hopeless because we can't do it. The, the power to worship God rightly as He is worthy of praise, the power to obey Him in our everyday lives comes from God's Spirit. And if you don't have God's Spirit, you simply cannot do it. If you want to worship God, You need God's Spirit in your heart. 
If you want to obey God, you need God's Spirit in your heart. That's the solution to this. The good news is that God knows that in our natural abilities, we cannot do it. That's why Jesus died for us on the cross, because God knew that the weight of our sin was going to crush us. We were going to be damned forever because of our sin. But Jesus died on the cross to forgive all of the weight of sin, all of your sins, past, present, and the ones you're going to commit in the future, later today and later in this week. Those sins, too, are covered by the cross of Jesus Christ. The incredible truth of the gospel is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why Christ came to die. But not just that. It's not just that our sins are forgiven. But God also gives his spirit to those who are in Christ so that the slavery that we have to sin is now broken too. You feel the weight of being a slave to sin if you're struggling with sin day after day after day. You feel like it's it's got you in chains and you just can't get free of it. But God's spirit is the one who frees you from that slavery and enables you to actually worship and obey God. It frees you from the slavery just as Christ forgave you from the, the effects of sin. Now some of you have an initial taste of this. You see that the Spirit of God is actually at work in your life, and you rejoice that, that maybe you don't sin all the time anymore, but just most of the time, and then, and then you're going to worship Him later because you go from sinning most of the time to, to sinning just some of the time. You see that, that God is, is working in His Spirit in yourself so that you actually worship Him more rightly, still imperfectly, of course, but, but you're starting to worship Him more and more. And so you've got the, the first fruits of the Spirit, the first taste that, of being animated by God's Spirit in your life, even now as a Christian. But of course, the struggle is still there. I've talked to, to longtime Christians who I think, oh, they're, they've probably really mature in the faith. They probably hardly ever sin. They're probably worshiping God almost all the time. And they're still saying things like, I can relate to those who, who cannot even look up, dare not even look up to heaven and beat their chest and say, God have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. I think that's the struggle of, of being a Christian. The struggle of being a Christian is, is, is loving God and wanting to serve and yet still struggling because you're still living in the realm of the flesh. You're still a natural person living in a, in a difficult world. So you still have that, that struggle back and forth. But the hope here of what Paul is saying is that that's not always going to be true. God is going to transform us and he's going to give us a new body that's that's animated, that's empowered by God's own spirit so that that whole struggle with sin and darkness and death is done forever. We will be fully free. I mean, can you imagine living fully free to worship God every moment of your existence? Not, not with the qualifications, not with the asterisks and the little side notes here and there saying, well, yes, I worship God, but I do this. And, you know, Yes, but, but I also am very selfish. No more asterisks. Now you are empowered by God's Spirit, filled with God's Spirit, totally, completely, so that you can worship God and serve Him every moment of your existence, just like you were created to. I don't know about you, but this is incredibly good news to me. Because I, I struggle with sin day after day. I think, why, God? Why, God? You have to take this away. You have to deliver me. And this is the answer. Yes, He will deliver us. He will deliver us. He will transform our weak, natural, uh, perishable little bodies into glorious bodies empowered by God's Spirit. I hope that this is just beginning to give you a longing for the good future that God has for you. I I feel really inadequate, but I I hope that you begin to be captivated by the the beauty of, of God's choice to take us sinful as we are and to make us new to make a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, 
so that we can finally experience life as God and created us to, worshiping him and enjoying him forever. See, I think eternity is written on our hearts. I really do. I, th- I think every one of us is really longing for something more. You, you look out at the world, and, and there are many good things in the world, but there are also many hard things in the world. And many of us long for something more. I was talking to someone after the service a couple weeks ago, and he said, you know, I think everyone's really longing for heaven. And I think they're right. We talked about this, this song uh, by John Lennon uh, called Imagine. Maybe some of you baby boomers uh, know that song. But it's a great example of that. He's, on the one hand, he's saying, well, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy. Just, just take heaven out of the picture, and, and let's just, everyone is living for today. Imagine that's true. So he wants to take heaven out of the picture. He wants to say, I'm not longing for heaven. But if you listen to that song, what he's longing for is something more. He says, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. In other words, he's saying there has to be something more. There has to be something better there. So in his heart, he's longing for something, even though he thinks that heaven's actually a hindrance toward getting that. But that's where where he's wrong. Heaven isn't a hindrance to this longing that we have. Heaven is the answer to the longing that we have. And further, the hope for a better world now is not in forgetting about heaven. It's in the fact that in God's power, heaven is breaking into the world right now. So we look forward to the resurrection of our bodies when we are transformed and we get a new body animated by God's Spirit. We're made in the image of Christ But Paul also says that that is happening even now. That is breaking into the world now. God's Spirit is now working in our hearts, making us these new people who are in the image of Christ. So he'll say in the next letter that he writes to this church in Corinth, he'll say this early on. He's encouraging them, uh, talking about preaching the gospel, preaching the weakness of the cross, but he's encouraging them. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, this is good news because God's power is at work in the world now miraculously in us imperfect people. He is making us conformed to the image of Christ. So even as our bodies are decaying outwardly, even as we still live in the natural realm where we are weak and we are dishonored and we are perishable, God is renewing us inwardly, even as our outward bodies are falling apart and disintegrating, and even as we near death ourselves, inwardly, God's Spirit is working so that we are becoming new people. And listen, when you know that, it will transform your life. It'll change how you live every day. And when that happens, the people around you are going to see, and they're going to notice the difference. And you're going to have an opportunity to testify to the greatness of God because it's His Spirit at work in your life. Even as your body is failing you and decaying, inwardly you are being renewed because your sight then is set on what is eternal what is unseen, because you have heard what God is going to do through his son, Jesus Christ. You have this hope in you so that God's spirit is renewing you. Others can see that, and then they too, by God's grace, will glorify God in heaven, and God will have more glory and more honor because he is due all of the honor and all of the glory and all of the praise of every creature on earth forever and ever. And the good news is that it's going to happen because God is the one who will do it. When God acts, 
people see who he is and they fall on their knees and worship him. My prayer for us as a church is that that would happen to us, that God would show us his glory and his grace in Jesus Christ and that we would respond by falling down on our knees and worshiping this God forever because that's what we get to do for eternity in these new bodies that God will give us. Our God is good. Our God is good. Please pray with me. God, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. As a sinful person, I thank you so much for the forgiveness of sins through the cross of your son, Jesus. And I thank you as a weak, vulnerable person that you have defeated death by the resurrection. And as a person who's still living here in this earthly life, I thank you for the good news that this is not the end, that you will send your son back and he will restore all things. This is our hope. And so we pray as a church. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.